I heard about an elementary class that was taking a field trip to a local police station, and one of the students noticed on the wall some most wanted posters that were hanging up there, and he asked the police officer who was giving the tour, you know, what, what was the deal with these, these, uh, these pictures on the wall? And the police officer told him, well, those are our most wanted posters. We, we put the pictures up of the most wanted criminals in our region, and these are people that have committed serious crimes, and, and yet they haven't been caught yet. And so they're our, they're our most wanted wall. And so another one of the students who was in earshot asked, well, are, are those pictures of the criminals real? Like, are, are those real pictures? And the police officer said, absolutely, they're real. Our police officers took those picture, pictures, to which another one of the students replied, well, then why didn't you just grab them when you took pictures of them, right? That only makes sense. You know, I think of all the questions that, that you and I have to answer in the course of our daily lives, questions involving who and what and when and where and how. Some are simple questions, some are not so simple questions, at least when it comes to answering them. But of all the questions that you and I have to answer or deal with or try to come to grips with in our own lives, I think the most difficult questions that we face are the why questions. And this is particularly true when it comes to why questions involving suffering and adversity and hardship in our lives. We are in the midst of a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called When God Asks the Questions. And really what we're doing is walking through Scripture, and this could really be like a year-long sermon series because there are plenty of, uh, of questions that God asks in Scripture. But we're just walking through some that uh, I'm, I picked out because I'm the preacher and I get to choose a little bit, but uh, I, I'm not opposed to you, uh, you know, asking um, for, for certain questions, but these are the ones that I, that I picked out to, for us to look at because I think they, they offer some very in, in, in significant insights into uh, our Christian lives. But we're walking through some of these questions that, that God asks of human beings. And so often we think of questions that we want to ask God, but what are some questions that God actually asks of us? And today we're going to be looking at a question that God asks of a man by the name of Job, who was asking why when it came to suffering and adversity in his life. And the question Job or question God responds with to Job uh, is found in Job chapter 38. Or it's kind of the, I mean, there's a lot of questions I could have picked out of this, this particular story. But the one that we're kind of going to kind of build off is, is one we find in Job chapter 38, verse 4, when God asked Job this question. Where were you, Job, in essence? Where were you, Job? When I laid the earth's foundation, where were you when? Now, I don't know how much you know about the story of Job, but it's a story that's played out on a couple of different levels. On the lower level, the earthly level, you have Job and, and this life, his life as he's living it and as he sees it and all the things that, that he's experiencing. And the story opens up in Job chapter 1 with Job's life being explained on this earthly level, on this earthly stage. For starters, Job was righteous in every sense of the word. So just to kind of paint a picture of, of who Job was and what his life was like, or at least some of the characteristics that made up who he was, Job was very, very righteous, very good man, as we might describe him. Job 1.1 1, 1 says that Job was 
blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In fact, Job went even so far as to not only offer sacrifices for himself and his sins, but he offered sacrifices for his entire family and their sins. So what they weren't necessarily maybe willing or, or able to do, he would go on their behalf. He was not only righteous as far as his, his life, but even reaching out into the lives of, of others. Job was one, as we might say, one righteous dude. He was very, very righteous. And not only was he righteous, but he was also very rich. Job 1, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Now that may not mean a whole lot in, in our terms today, because we don't think of richness as in those kind of things. We think of how big's your bank account. Um, but just take it, as that's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of, of, of equity that he has and a, and a lot of property that he has. He was so rich, it says, that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so Job is doing pretty well. But Job chapter 1 quickly transitions to another stage, the upper stage, the heavenly stage. And Job does not see and is not aware of anything happening on this stage. However, we, as the readers, are allowed a glimpse of what's going on in this upper stage. So, let's see what is going on. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming the earth and going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out through the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so with divine permission, no less, life on the lower level is radically altered for Job. A freak weather phenomenon and human violence take almost everything he has from him. His wealth, his flocks, his servants, even his sons and his daughters. Only his wife remains. And Job chapter 1 ends with Job grieving profoundly and yet continuing to worship God. The scene then shifts back to the upper stage again in Job chapter 2, the heavenly stage, with Satan again appearing before God. So Job chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so again, with divine permission, life on the lower level gets even worse for Job. Painful boils develop all over Job's body, and it's more than his wife can stand. She's already lost all of her children, all of their possessions, 
And now her husband is physically suffering immensely on top of it all. And his wife says to him in verse 9, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replies, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and, and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And then from there, we stay on the lower level for most of the rest of the book of Job. We stay there with Job on that lower level. Job's three friends catch wind of everything that he's going through and everything that he's lost. They reach out to try and comfort him. Job, in return, just basically unloads his heart. And it is a cauldron of anger and confusion and frustration and despair. And eventually it just brims over into wondering, why has all this happened to him? Why why am I experiencing all of this? And for the next 35 chapters, Job and his friends have this back and forth conversation. His friends maintain the popular thinking of the day. Well, Job, these things must be happening to you because you deserve it, right? I mean, Job, your life is made up of of what you bring on yourself and the choices that you make, and and that's for better and for worse. And so if you're prospering, it must mean that you're, you're, you're doing good and you've been good and it's pleasing to God. And if you're suffering now like you are, it must mean that you have done something You've done something bad, and you've displeased God. You've ticked him off, and that's why you're experiencing what you are experiencing. Job, to his credit, at least discounts or uh, rejects their reasoning, and, and he admits, listen, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm the same guy I was when everything was going well. And so there's got to be a deeper answer than that. There's got to be a deeper reason to what's going on than just that. And he wants God no less, to show up and give it to him. Now again, this dialogue goes on for 35 chapters. It's a lot. It's a lot to dig through and process. Uh, And it just keeps going back and forth and around and around. And and some scholars say that's kind of, in a lot of ways, the purpose of the book. I I, I don't know exactly if they're 100% right, but I think there's something to it that that kind of to show these, these 35 chapters to show that that's how our conjectures and our, our, our thought processes go when we try to discover why and we try to give reason when there may not really be a reason. When we, when we experience suffering, suffering and, and adversity and we ask those questions, why our, our reasoning and our logic and our conversations can just, can just go around and around and around and maybe there is something to that. But through it all, Job basically says, God at least owes me an explanation for what I'm going through. And I'm guessing that pretty much all of us in this room have been there at one time or another. God, God you know, maybe we don't take it as far as to, to put God on trial, so to speak, although I, I would guess that a lot of us have been that far too, myself included. But we just like a reason why. Why? For instance, in Job chapter 13, verse 3, Job says, But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Job chapter 19, verse 6, he says, Know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Job chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, he says, If only I knew where to find him. 
If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Or Job chapter 31 verse 35, Job says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign my, now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And lo and behold, by the time we get to Job chapter 38, God makes his appearance on the lower level. He shows up. And not so surprising, Job gets way more than he asks for. God makes his appearance in the form of a storm. I can't even imagine what that storm would be like. But he makes his appearance in the form of a storm, and God speaks to Job out of the storm with some questions of his own, including the one we already looked at. Job chapter 38, starting in verse 2. God says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. And these are the first of what amount to be more than 50 questions that God fires off at Job. In fact, from chapters 38 to 41, there is such a barrage of questions from God to Job that it's like a machine gun going off one after another, after another, after another. And Job can answer none of them. Job wants God to justify why he's suffering and why he's going through what he's going through. And God responds by asking Job question after question that Job simply cannot answer. God asked Job in Job chapter 40, verse 2, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Skip down to verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself, Job? And then God continues on with another couple of chapters worth of questions until finally Job says, okay, I've had enough. I, I get the point. And Job speaks up in Job chapter 42, and he says this, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel with knowledge, without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. My, eye, my ears had heard of you. I love this. I love this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Again, not surprisingly, Job changes his tune after God's interrogation. But here's what's curious to me. There's several things about this story that are quite interesting, but there's a couple of things that that stand out to me. In those four chapters of questions, God never tells Job why he's suffering. Nor does God speak of what is going on up on the upper level. He doesn't doesn't explain everything that's going on on this upper level in this conversation that he has with Satan or anything that we as the readers are privy to. He leaves Job, literally, in the dark when it comes to why. Here's another thing that I find very interesting. Job, after encountering God, was content with not knowing why. For all of these chapters... He spends wondering why, 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 why. And then after this barrage of questions, Job was content with not knowing why. 
Job didn't get the answer he was looking for. But he did get the answer he needed in the questions that God asked of him. So what was it about the questions that God asked Job that was such a turning point for Job? There's probably several reasons, several things that are going on. But I think first and foremost, God was assuring Job of the kind of God he is. And that is so important. That is so fun. If you leave with nothing else today, I hope you leave with that. That, that so much of what God desires to do through us, and especially teach us through the story of Job, is to sh- assure us of the kind of God that he is. And that's what he was trying to portray to Job. When you read the questions that, that God asks of Job, and you look at the kind of questions that they are, they are a revelation of the kind of God that he is. And that's really what Job is wondering in the midst of everything that he's going through, all the suffering and the adversity. You know, that's really what we want to know. That's really what all the why questions boil down to. Because they all center around, well, well, why would God allow this? Why would God do this? Well, they all come back to what kind of God would allow this? What kind of God would do this? What kind of God would, would fill in the blank, right? What kind of God are you? And so God lets him know what kind of God he is. And God talks about things like the universe and how it works and weather patterns and how he cares for all of these different animals. And it's so easy to get bogged down with all of these questions because they're very, very weighty and there's so many of them. And it's so easy to lose sight of the whole story of Job and what's going on in this story. But the point that God is trying to make is look at how I take care of all these things. I made all these things. I take care of all these things. I I provide for all of these different animals. How, How I know the intimate details of their lives. And if I know all of these things, not only do I know them and sustain them, but I brought them into being. If I know how to take care of them, and I do take care of them, and I sustain them on a regular basis, if I know all of these things, how much more am I gonna take care of you? Look around you at all that you see, and I, it's at my fingertips. Do you think I've forgotten about you? Do you think I can't take care of you? It's similar to the point that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, in verse 26, when he says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And so in all of this conversation, Job finds out about the kind of God that God is. That he's good, that he's loving, he's generous, he's certainly powerful. Job never finds out about the conversations in heaven or the reasons why he's going through what he's going through. But Job finds out something better. He finds out who God is. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Nothing about Job's life or his circumstances had changed at this point. Outside of his wife, he's lost virtually everything in his life. And yet Job makes peace with God and draws near to him in the wake of this encounter with God's love and care for him. So what are some takeaways from basically a one-message crash course on the book of Job. Well, let me give you four things this morning. First, when it comes to adversity and suffering, knowing God will help us more than knowing why. 
Now, I know we want to know why. But I can promise you, and I guarantee you in your life when you experience it, the reality is that knowing God will help you more than knowing the answer to why. Again, God never gives Job the answer he's looking for, but he does give him the answer he needed. And the answer he needed was the answerer himself. Now, that's not to say that we should never bother with trying to figure out a a cause and effect and why things happen and, 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 and trying to understand things and and look at things and and even asking why. I don't think God shuns us away from asking why. You know, I was talking to to Lauren this morning, though, and and just think about it from a practical sense. I know in our minds, you know, we want to know why, and that seems like the, the easiest way to get some resolution on an issue. But let me ask you, if you're sitting in a hospital room and a loved one is lying in the hospital room, do you want somebody to come in and, and tell you why they're experiencing this? Or would you like to have someone come and sit with you and love on you? Now, I know we like the answers, and maybe when a doctor comes in, certainly there's some room for that. But we want somebody to be with us. We want somebody to speak some hope and and some love and some grace into our lives. We want someone's presence with us. This isn't no different than it is with God. And we're foolish to assume that our hope and our peace will be found once and for all in knowing the why for something happening. It's more important to know him than to know why. And for some of us, that may mean letting go of of the idolatry of knowing why. You know, all forms of, of idolatry lead to bondage. And some of us are so obsessed with knowing why. Why, why did this happen? Why did I have to go through this? And, and even something that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago in your life, you're, you still hang on to why did this happen? And we're not able to move forward, not able to, to move past the past. But our hope and our peace have more to do with knowing who than knowing why. Maybe that's why this next takeaway, I think, is so important. That when it comes to adversity and suffering in our lives, God responds with a visitation and not simply an explanation. God responds with his presence and not simply a reason why. And what he does with Job is not the only time that God does this. There are countless stories throughout the Bible when God shows up in the midst of people's struggles and adversity where he he makes his presence and his love and his grace fully known to them and he still does that with us today. The reality is that that in life when we face trials and, and adversity and struggles and sufferings, we may never get an explanation. You can ask why all day long and you may never get an explanation. You may never get an answer as to why. But when we look to him, we get a visitation. We get his presence. And each one of us has given the ult- had been given the ultimate expression of God's presence in the person of Jesus Christ. Because really, when you think about it, Jesus is God walking in Job's shoes. In fact, when we come to understand more and more about who Jesus is and what he went through, we find that through Jesus' life on earth, he tasted life on earth and all of the unfairness, all the sufferings, that we could have imagined. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And I like what one writer said. He said, Christians do not believe that we have an answer to all the tragedies of life, but rather that we have a God who in Jesus Christ enters tragedy, stands with us, and makes a way through. 
The cross of Christ is not a sign, or excuse me, the cross of Christ is a sign, not an answer or a reason for the hurt that happens in life. It's something better. The cross is a sign, I love this, that God is with us, particularly in the dark times. The cross reminds us that wherever there is tragedy and justice and pain, there is God. When it comes to adversity and suffering, what we truly need is not an explanation, but it is a visitation from God. That leads me to a third takeaway, and it's this. Adversity, I think in many ways, is an opportunity for our faith to be revealed as something more than just what's in it for us. When we go through times of adversity and we go through times of suffering, it's really an opportunity for your faith and my faith to be revealed as something more than just what's in it for us, or a Sunday morning faith, or when times are good, faith. Satan says to God at the beginning of the story, does Job fear God for nothing? I think that's a very poignant question. Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, when everything is going well in your life, it's really easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's really easy to profess certain things about what we believe and who we are and how great God is. But Satan says, God, you take away all he has. Watch what happens to his faith. And in essence, God says, I I think his faith is bigger than that. Satan says, well, let's see. Let's put that to the test. Now, Job does have some times of disillusionment, and, and, and he gets angry and confused with God. But through it all, he stays connected to God and draws near to him and ultimately experiences a peace with him despite everything that happens to him. Now, if you know the end of the story, you might say, well, hold on a second. Doesn't God in the end bless Job with like twice as much as what he had in, in the beginning? After he goes through all this, doesn't the story end with, with God blessing him with, with all of this stuff, like twice as much as what he had before? Yes, that is true. But Job comes to peace with God and draws near to God before any of that happens. Job proved that his faith was something more than just what's in it for him during the good times. That his love for God transcended those things. That's why I say that when we, when we encounter adversity and we encounter suffering in our lives, it really is an opportunity for my faith, for your faith to be revealed as something more than just what's in it for us. And then here's the last takeaway. Those times when we feel that God has has left us, maybe has turned his back on us, may actually be times when he's using us the most for his glory. Now, I know it doesn't feel like those times in the moments, but those times when we feel like maybe, where where is God? We ask that, where, where was God during may actually be the times when he's using us the most for his glory. Because you think about the story of Job. The irony of the story is that for most of the book, on the lower level, Job feels like God has turned on him. Feels like God has turned his back on him, that he spurned him, that, that God is nowhere to be found. And yet the irony is that God in heaven on the upper level is actually exalting Job. He uses Job to send a message to Satan and and the dark forces of evil about the capacity of human beings, of you and me, to love and to trust God beyond what our circumstances tell us we should. Our capacity to love and trust God, not simply for what he does for us, but because of who he is in and of himself. 
And for thousands of years, the story of Job, God has used it to strengthen, to encourage so many who have gone through tremendous suffering and adversity. And I believe it or not, I, I do believe it, God can use your story. God can use your adversity, your suffering, to strengthen and encourage others. He hasn't spurned you. He hasn't turned his back on you. He is very much with you. And he wants to use you for his glory. Maybe today you're going through some difficult times and you can put yourself in Job's shoes in some ways. Or maybe you've, been, maybe you've had some difficult times that you've gone through in the past that you still struggle to wrap your mind around. You still struggle to try and understand and maybe you're wondering, where is God when it hurts? I mean, where was God when I was going through that season in my life of adversity or that season of suffering, that season of deep pain? I think God has something to say to us through the book of Job. But I think he has something even more profound to say to us through Jesus. You know, we ask the question, where is God? Where is God when I was going through this? And I think he points to the cross as his answer. Where is God? And God says, that's where I am. That's where I am. 